Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, let me encourage you to uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the reading we had earlier uh, in the service. Page 669 is uh, the page number, page 669, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, as we continue uh, in this series looking through the book of Ecclesiastes. I used to love uh, playing cards uh, as a lad, Uh, and a game that I uh, loved playing uh, whenever I could was uh, a a game called, I think it's Whist Trumps is what I called it. It's a very simple game. Uh, It's a game where uh, uh, hearts are always trumps, ace is high, and so the ace of hearts is unbeatable. Now hold the ace of hearts and you could not lose. In fact, hold the Ace of Hearts and it didn't matter how everyone else played, you would win the trick. In the game of life, death holds the Ace of Hearts. It doesn't matter how you play the game of life. When death plays its card, we lose. Game over. Death is described in the Bible as the last enemy to be destroyed. And so it's still here, doing its worst, casting its shadow over life. And it's the stark reality of death that we come face to face with in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this evening. In this book, in Ecclesiastes, uh, the the author, uh, he calls himself the teacher. He systematically looks at different aspects of life to see what life is all about. Now, if you've been here the last two weeks, you'll remember he looks at life under the sun. Do you remember that expression? That phrase that comes again and again throughout the book. It runs throughout our passage this evening. You might have noted it while it was being read. You'll see it in chapter 2, verse 17, and verse 18, and verse 19, and verse 20, and verse 22. Under the sun. The teacher views life as if life on this blue-green planet is all we have. That's life under the sun. Nothing beyond the sun. And in our section today, the teacher draws a comparison between wisdom on the one hand and on the other hand, madness and folly. That's what he says in verse 12. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. This is a summary of the book so far, really. See, in the second half of the first chapter, the teacher considered wisdom. You you might remember it. Chapter 1, verse 13. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Verse 16. I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone else has ruled over Israel before me. And I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. He looked at wisdom. It's important for us to understand this word wisdom as the teacher uses it. This is not the wisdom of of Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 where we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not that. For remember, the teacher is looking at life under the sun. Not bringing the Lord into it at all. And so Derek Kidner describes wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes as the best thinking that man can do on his own. Throughout this book, the teacher is very positive about wisdom. You don't need to turn these references up, but in chapter 10, verse 10, he says wisdom can bring success. Well, we know that. Study hard, get a good degree, and it may bring its rewards. 
In chapter 7, he says that wisdom preserves and, and protects life. We know the truth of that. Wisdom has led to medical advancement. Uh, there's wisdom in getting immunized, the wisdom of making good decisions. Wisdom protects life. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, the teacher says, wisdom brings joy. There's something wonderful about simply discovering and understanding stuff. And in chapter 7, verse 23, the teacher says that wisdom is good for testing and weighing experiences. A wise man learns from their mistakes and, and doesn't make the same mistakes again. That's wisdom for you. It's good for you. So there's no question in the teacher's mind throughout this book, wisdom is good and valuable. But he says in chapter 1, wisdom isn't everything. For it also brings sorrow and grief. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now, again, we know that at the most basic level. I think of my own children as they're growing up. When they were younger and they didn't know much stuff, when they didn't have much wisdom, there was something wonderful for them in their naivety. They thought everything was, was good and perfect and lovely. But now as they start to know more, as they become more wise, life becomes more complicated and full of sorrow and grief. Chapter 1, verse 18. See, as we have to tell them to be careful on the internet and warn them of the dangers of social networking because there are people out there who want to harm them. Yes, that kind of wisdom is good. It does protect them, as the writer says later on. But that same inf information that protects them also brings them grief and sorrow as they realise there are wicked people out there. Do you see? That's chapter 1, verse 18. So wisdom is good. But it brings grief and sorrow. Doesn't it turn out that way as you get to know more about life? Life becomes more complicated. So the teachers studied wisdom, and then last week we saw the second half of, uh, in the first half of chapter 2, he turned to a life of, of folly. That's the word he uses in verse 3. Do you see? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. Now this life of folly, do you remember, saw the teacher throw himself into the pleasure dome. He lived a, an opulent lifestyle of gratification and celebration. He tried everything, wine, women, song, sex, drugs and rock and roll, eat, drink and be merry. He did it all. He threw himself into a lifestyle that was a mix of um, Club 1830, high society living and the appreciation of culture and arts. He tried everything. His research was as comprehensive as he believes it could possibly be. Do you see, we saw that in verse 10 of chapter 2 last week. He, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. He did it all, and he loved it all. Yes, he calls it folly, but he loved it. Look what he says as he sums up his life of decadence halfway through verse 10. My heart took delight in all my work. I think he's got a bit of a cheek to call it work, but, but that apart, it was great. He loved it. But do you remember it didn't leave him satisfied, verse 11? Yet when I surveyed all my hands had achieved... Uh, undone and all that I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Others have come to the same conclusion. The Canadian comedian and actor Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. We think it's all we'd ever want. Fame and wealth and all the opportunities that come with it. No, says Jim Carey. And no, says the teacher. 
And so now, here in chapter 2, verse 12, the teacher compares the two, wisdom on the one hand, that he looked at in the second half of chapter 1, and madness and folly on the other, that he looked at in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, 1 to 11. And in the second half of verse 12, we see why it matters so much for him to do this comparison. Now look at verse 12, the second half. Well, I'll read from the first part. He says, then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what he's already been done? I think the teacher's saying here, um, I want to know what to tell the next generation. Remember, he's the king. I want to know what to tell the next generation. I want to tell them how they should live their lives. If we only get one crack at life, what should I tell them that they should uh, throw their lives into? Should I tell my children and grandchildren that they should seek wisdom, get stuck into the books, give themselves to understanding the world, send them off to university, encourage them to do a PhD or two? Or would I be better to tell them to simply go and have a laugh, have a blast while it lasts, live it up, eat, drink and be merry? What would be best? What's uh, best, wisdom or or madness and folly? This, if you like, is a Harry Hill moment. I like wisdom and I like madness and folly. But which is best? There's only one way to find out. Well, except he doesn't actually have a fight. He, He does square these things up, but he doesn't have a fight over it. Wisdom or madness and folly, which is best? So summing up of the book so far. And although it's a a big question, a huge question, it doesn't take him long to answer it. Look at verse 13. I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. He's not had long to think about it. Wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom will guide you through life much better than folly. Wisdom is good. Better than walking around with your eyes closed, he says in verse 14. There's something very satisfying about understanding. Understanding how the world works. Discovering truths about this astonishing planet. Finding out about the intricacies of our body and the mind-blowing magnitude of the solar system. That's great. It's good. And much of that sort of wisdom is not only interesting, it's useful for life. When I know how things work, it makes getting through life much easier. Whether that means being well-read or just having good old-fashioned common sense, wisdom is a good quality. Being wise can save you an awful lot of grief. What, what, what do we say? A stitch in time saves nine. That's wise, that's wisdom. In Ecclesiastes' talk, uh, sort, uh, sort out a problem quickly and it saves you a lot of work in the long run. What else do we say? A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. That's wise. It, it's better to hold on to what you have than pursue that which you may never get hold of. A stitch in time saves nine, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And the, the great saying that my brother, my brother taught me many years ago, those in glass houses shouldn't change with the light on. That, that's wise. <laughs> a life of wisdom is sensible. It's better than folly. It's better than a reckless life, says the teacher, verse 13, just as light is better than darkness. A life of folly is like getting up in the middle of the night, you bump into things, you stub your toe, you bang your head, you fumble around. Who wants to live in the dark when you can switch the light on? Being wise is good, says the teacher, but neither, neither wisdom nor folly are the key to the meaning of life. For yes, verse 14, the wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realise that the same fate overtakes them both. See, at the end of the day, the wise and the foolish alike share the same destination. Death. That's the bottom line. 
And when you face death, all the value of wisdom disappears. You can be the wisest person who ever lived. It isn't going to stop you from dying. It gets us all in the end. Death always has the last word. Death holds the ace of hearts, you see. And so death renders wisdom meaningless because death renders everything meaningless. That is why it's so horrible. As Derek Kidner writes, if one fate comes to all and that fate is extinction, it robs man of his dignity and robs every project of its point. That is why death is so mortifying. And that, I presume, is why we hate to talk about death. We can't do anything about it. It strips us and everything of meaning and we don't have the solution to it. The teacher has already alluded to death back in chapter 1. Indeed, the inconvenient and uncomfortable truth of death is running right through this book. We won't go many pages without reading it. But here, here it is for the first time in this book in its stark reality. Death makes everything meaningless. And so because death comes to all alike, wisdom and foolish, wisdom cannot hold the meaning of life because, verse 14, the same fate overtakes both the wise and the fool. Yes, wisdom may be better than folly. And yes, it may be smart to tell those who come after you not to live a reckless life. Yes, it may be better to be wise and knowledgeable and full of common sense. But at the end of the day, both the wise man and the fool end in the same place. Dead, lying next to each other in the cemetery. And if that's a thought we don't like to think about, what the teacher does next is definitely something we, must, uh, we try to avoid. Because in the next verse, he makes it personal. See, verse 15, then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. Uh, Let me put it like this. You see, in verse 14, the teacher takes us to the hospital mortuary. We go down into the cool, dark clinical room. The pathologist pulls out a drawer and introduces us to our first cadaver. She was brilliant, he says, and then he lifts off her qualifications. First at Cambridge, PhD from Harvard, Nobel Prize winner, published many times on many different subjects, paid considerable sums of money to lecture around the world in her different fields, respected by many. She was brilliant. And then he pulls out a second drawer to reveal a second corpse. And what of this person, you ask? Well, there's nothing much to say, really. He was a fool, a complete waster, a bungling idiot. Could have done so much with his life, preferred to squander it all, or all, all he had on wild living. What a waste. That's the reality of verse 14. But verse 15, verse 15 is when the reality strikes you. As you look at the two bodies lying before you in the mortuary, you realise that one day you'll be lying where they lie. That's verse 15. And then I thought in my heart the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? See, in the cold light of the day, or maybe we should say in the cool stillness of the mortuary, wisdom is meaningless. When death comes, it doesn't matter how you've lived your life. It doesn't matter how sensible your decisions were. It doesn't matter that you have letters after your name. You can't sidestep death. It's a devastating conclusion. But that's the truth of the matter when you look at life under the sun. 
Death renders everything meaningless. And what's more, once you're dead, you're not remembered for long. Verse 16, for the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. Uh, Since my mum's death back in June, my brother and I have been clearing out the family home. Uh, And we've come across hundreds of photos, most of them of us and of our immediate family. But we've also found many photos of others, others we don't know. We presume they're relatives, but we don't know their names or anything about them. A few of them are labelled, but most of them aren't. And that's verse 16. The wise man, like the fool, will not be remembered. I don't know these people. I don't know how they lived their lives, but that's the point. They might have been brilliant. They might have been idiots, but I have no idea. I don't know anything about them. And so, do you see, within a couple of generations, we don't have a clue about who our own family are. And really, in reality, the memory fades much quicker than a couple of generations. In reality, it's one of the most painful things for the bereaved. I think of a number of widows I've visited over the years, a few months after the funeral. They continue to miss the husband they shared so much of their life with. Of course they do. For life, for them, life is empty, devastatingly empty. Not a day goes by without them remembering their loved one. And it's made that much harder because everyone else seems to be getting on with life as if nothing else has changed. Everyone else has, in reality, forgotten their loved one. That's verse 16. The wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. Does it all sound horribly depressing? Well, it did for the teacher. Look at verse 17. So, he says, I hated life. The teacher is close to suicidal despair. Death holds the ace of hearts. And it doesn't matter how much you live, how you've lived your life, it doesn't matter when death trumps every card you play. What is the point of it all? What's the point of working hard for the little trinkets of life that seem to make life more enjoyable? That's what he says in verse 18. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. See, here's another inconvenient truth. You can't take it with you when you die. Oh, we all know it. But not many of us believe it. Not so that it changes the way we live. Just look at the way we make life a trivial pursuit of possessions. See again, verse 18, the truth of verse 18 has become very clear to me in these last months. Uh, Since we've been clearing out the family home in order to sell it, I need to tell you that that my mum and dad were not hoarders. They didn't have much in life. And everything they did have, they had to work hard for. But here's the thing, it's all been left to David, my brother and I, and tons of it we've given away, or thrown away, or packed up in boxes because we don't want it, but we just feel that we shouldn't give it away or throw it away. David and I have come across things that I know, and we've actually said to ourselves, our mum and dad really worked hard for that. Things they really treasured. They've gone now and they've left them to us and we don't want them. That's verse 18. Uh, My grandmother uh, scrimped and saved all her life. She was born in a Welsh mining village, one of 14 children who lived in a two-up, two-down terraced house. 
Two rooms upstairs, two rooms downstairs, and an outside toilet. Life was hard for Nana Williams. She worked hard all her life, scrimped and saved all her life in order to leave something to her children and grandchildren. She wanted to give us a better life, a better start in life than she had. She didn't want to take it with her when she died. She gained great pleasure from the thought of leaving it for her loved ones. Her hard work was done in order to leave it for us. And that seems to negate verse 18, doesn't it? She wanted to leave it for us. Seems to negate the point of verse 18 until you read verse 19. I'll read from verse 18. I hated all the things I taught for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he'll have control over all the work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labour under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill. And then he must leave all he owns to someone who's not worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great misfortune. You see there in verse 19, there's our fool again. The fool can blow a life's work in a moment. He can squander a fortune in a moment. He can spend a magnificent inheritance on the reckless living of chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Well, we know it's true. We know how some lottery winners have blown it all before they finish their life. Then there are a number of high-profile cases of playboy characters from the aristocracy, buffoons who inherited a huge estate and have made a mockery of their father's estates, estates that have been passed down for generation after generation after generation. And what do they turn to? Drugs and mismanagement, the high life, the estate then gone to pot and it all ending up in the hands of administrators. That's verse 19. I think of my situation as my brother and I inherit my parents' house, the home they worked so hard to buy. They were, they, they were not wealthy people. We were brought up on a council estate. They brought their council house. They weren't wealthy people. They worked hard. They sacrificed to buy that house. When it sold, I could be a complete fool, blow the lot on something my parents thoroughly disapproved of, blow it all in a few weeks or months. I could have a great time. If I go missing for a while, that's what I've done. Now, do you see, when you're gone, you're gone. And verse 19, you don't know what the next generation will do with all you've worked for. A fool could squander it all on wild living and you don't have a say in it. And the more we've worked hard to build up our, our estate, the more galling it will be to consider that the one who inherits it could blow it all in one fell swoop. Now, think about that for a long time, or even for a short time. With the teacher, we'll see how pointless it is to make a trivial pursuit of possessions. Death, it seems, not only holds the ace of hearts, it holds all the aces. Now, verse 21 sums it up. Look what he says in verse 21. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who's not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. I love that. It's a great play on words. Do you see it there? A man must leave all he owns to someone. He must leave his fortune. And in the hands of a fool, his fortune becomes, do you see at the end of verse 21, a great misfortune. So, verse 22... 
What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labours under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. See, no matter how much stuff you get, you have no choice but to give it away to someone who's not worked for it. And what did all that hard work bring you, verse 23? Sleepless nights, ulcers and a whole lot of stress. Well, you, you can feel it, can't you? The, the teacher is at the end of his tether in verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Oh, by the way, by work here, he doesn't mean, you know, going out to work. He just means whatever he's doing with his life. And if you look at life under the sun, if there's nothing beyond the sun, if there's no life after death, if death holds the ace of hearts... Well, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Verse 24, eat, drink, and try to find some satisfaction in whatever you do. As we saw last week, the teacher is not suggesting that there's no enjoyment in the things of this life. He's just saying the enjoyment, the satisfaction is limited. You're never going to be fully satisfied, not when you look at life like this. And that, end of verse 24, here's the surprise is from the hand of God. 4 verse 25, without God, who can can eat or find enjoyment? Isn't that a surprise? I love this twist at the end of this section of Ecclesiastes. All along, the teacher has been looking at life under the sun, excluding God from his thinking, really, and he's concluded that without God, everything is meaningless, vapour, nothing has substance. And here we discover that God has designed it that way. This is all from the hand of God. The end of verse 24 tells us that the, the inability, our inability to find ultimate satisfaction in anything apart from God is from God's hand. God will not let you find the meaning of life in your work, in wisdom, in building an estate or whatever, because that's not where the meaning of life is to be found. It shouldn't actually be a complete surprise to us, because back in chapter 1, verse 13, the teacher wrote of the heavy burden God has laid on men. At first, that sounds harsh. It is, in fact, wonderfully kind of God. Isn't it so very kind of God that he should design the world in such a way that we can't find lasting, deep-down satisfaction in anything other than him? Because he knows if we do, we'll settle for something other than him. And that'll be settling for second best. For we were made to know him. We were made for him And to be satisfied in anything other than him is to miss out on ultimate satisfaction. And so God won't let us find satisfaction in anything else so that we'll keep asking the question, what is life all about? God has deliberately designed us like this so that we don't kid ourselves into thinking we found the meaning of life until we turn to God himself. Derek Tidball writes this, The irritation and wearisomeness of life is God's strategy to remind us of our need of him. Are you weary of life? Burdened by life? At the end of your tether, maybe even hating life? In God's kindness, he is telling you to look to him. In his kindness and in his love for you, he's calling out to you. He's calling out to you in the way that he set life up. And he's calling out to you to turn to him. 
Christian, have you found yourself drifting from Jesus? When you've uh, turned on the telly and seen the adverts, when you've looked at the way other people do life, when you've looked at the world, have you begun to believe that something else will satisfy you? Uh, Have you thrown yourself into your career or been searching for meaning in a lover or expecting a new house or a new car or the dream of something better to give you what you crave for? You won't find it in those things. God has designed the world in such a way to ensure that you won't find it so that you'll return to him where you'll find what you're looking for. Verse 26 is an amazing verse. It's a summary of the first two chapters. We've seen that the meaning of life is not found in wisdom, work and pleasure. Wisdom, knowledge, folly leave us empty. Seek those things and you get nothing. You just store up things to give them to other people, he says in verse 26. But seek God, verse 26. Look for the Lord and not only do we discover what life is all about, but at no extra cost he throws in wisdom, knowledge and joy. See, the teacher has shown us what we're left with when we look at life under the sun. We've seen again the limitations of life under the sun. And so don't you think it would be sensible to look to the one who came from beyond the sun, the Lord Jesus? Look to him and listen to what he said. He said, I've come that you may have life and have it in all its fullness. I've come to give you life to the max. To those who feel burdened by life, he says, come to me all who weary and and are burdened and I will give you rest. When the stark reality of death grabs you, he says, I am the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me will live even though he die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. These are the wonderful truths of following Jesus. He has snatched the ace of hearts out of death's hand. And while death may still have the king of hearts and appear to trump any card that I play, When I'm in Christ, he plays the ace of hearts on my behalf. He guarantees me resurrection from the dead. His card trumps death, and that gives us meaning. And when we've turned to him and we hear this and we believe this and live for him, we hear these words. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear Christians, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray together. Now, Father, as we began looking at the book of Ecclesiastes this evening, we asked you to show us Christ, to show us how glorious Jesus Christ is in the light of everything else. We know that as we go from here, from the moment we start living life again, everything else is going to seem very attractive, and we're going to keep feeling the pull of turning to other things. And so we ask you to burn the truths of your word deep into our heart.
that we'd remember them and believe them. And every time we're drifting to something else, we'd come back to the only one that can bring us what we're really looking for, the Lord Jesus. Help us to be good at encouraging each other in these things. As we see uh, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ drifting to other things, help us gently to, to pull them back. And may it be that when we're doing that, other friends would pull us back. That we as your people here this evening would want to know Jesus because he is glorious and he's the one who'll give us life to the full. And so we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.